please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Paul's letter to the Galatians. As we turn to this portion of God's Word, let's not fail to turn to Him in prayer. Please join me. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit, would you help us to not only be informed, but also transformed by your word, so that both individually as Christians and corporately as a church, we would increasingly reflect the image of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Here we are at week 13 in our series, The Gospel According to the Bible, an exposition of the letter to the Galatians. Remember Mark's gospel, who is Jesus? Now in Galatians, it's what is the gospel? We've been learning as we study the New Testament that the gospel both establishes and matures us, the church, and we're, we're seeing as Paul unfolds this letter that that the gospel is not just the ABCs, the first steps, but rather the A to Z in the Christian life. The gospel is a lifetime message. It's, it's both the on-ramp to and the freeway of the Christian life. A few years ago, the uh, men in the church had a book study, and we studied the book, The Discipline of Grace. And in it, the, the author, the late Jerry Bridges, uh, comes uh, to make the argument that there is one message that both unbeliever and believer need to hear. And in his surveys, he found that, of course, people say unbelievers need the gospel, but what believers need is the duties of discipleship. And what he came to find out as studying the scriptures, especially Romans, was that no, yes, there are duties of discipleship, of course, but what really is the one message that the believer needs to continue to hear, it's the gospel. Remember, Peter in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, he proclaims the gospel to a crowd who had killed Jesus. The word cut, to the, cut their hearts. What must we do to be saved? The gospel was proclaimed to unbelievers. But here in Galatians, what is Paul doing? He's proclaiming the gospel to professing believers. The gospel is a lifetime message. It's the one message that we need when we are dead in sin and lost and without hope. It's also the message that we continue to need to hear until that day when we no longer walk by faith, but instead walk by sight. Well, last week, after a five-week break, we resumed, and indeed we had to review much of Galatians as we looked at uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 in From Slavery to Sonship. Remember from last week, Paul is reminding his readers that once you were a slave, but now you are a son. As a result of faith in Jesus Christ, you have moved, you have been moved from slavery to sonship. You may recall in that lengthy something to think about quote that J.I. Packer in Knowing God said this, that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. He goes on to say that justification is the primary and fundamental blessing, but adoption is higher because it, there's a richer relationship. To be right with God, the judge, he says, is a great thing. Absolutely. 
But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater thing. Remember some of the privileges as a son. No longer a slave, but a son. There's a privilege of the intimacy of relationship. There is assurance and security in God's love for us. There is access to God through prayer. So not only does sonship involve privileges as a son, but also privileges as an heir. As you see again in verse 7 of chapter uh, uh, 4. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so you have privileges of being an heir. There's the authority of possession. You have confidence and boldness. You have a reverential fear of the Lord. You have both assurance and security as a son. And you have confidence and boldness because you are an heir of the one who owns all things. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul in Galatians moves from justification to adoption. He never leaves justification, but rather he builds on it. So last week we saw the move from slavery to sonship. But in today's passage, Paul has to address the issue of those who want to move in the opposite direction. Looks like it's not a one-way street here. There's traffic going both ways. The opposite direction would be from sonship back to slavery. Therefore, he's going to have to continue to defend the truth of the gospel and the truth of justification by faith, Paul will reinforce his teaching by appealing both to the experience of the Galatians themselves, as we will see today in verses 8 through 20, and then, as we will see next week in verses 21 through 31, the testimony of the law itself. Join with me now as I read Galatians 4, 8 through 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, As Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, 
for I am perplexed about you. Well, we're going to begin by going to the end, to verse 20, the last half of verse 20. An apostle is perplexed. Paul here has made the move from astonishment in chapter 1, verse 6, to perplexity. Recall that Paul writes that he was astonished that they were deserting and turning to a different gospel. And now here in chapter 4, he writes that he is perplexed. He is astonished and he is perplexed. In other words, he is bewildered, confounded, confused, baffled, puzzled. He's mystified. Perplexed? Really? Paul? The academic... I mean, the Pharisee of Pharisees who studied at the best schools, he's confused, he's baffled, he's perplexed. Well, we'll find out that it's not because he is ignorant of what is going on, but rather he is saddened and grieved because of what is happening. Paul is almost at a loss for words. Why is he perplexed? Good question. Well, in order to get to an answer, we're going to have to take a close look at the text through observing the text. And in doing so, we're going to note four things. A contrast, Paul's personal appeal, the Galatians' attitude toward Paul, and Paul's attitude toward the Galatians. Well, let's now consider the contrast that Paul establishes. And we see that in verses 8 through 11. Paul will establish a contrast between what they once were we see in verse 8, to what they are now becoming, verse 9. What they once were, they did not know God. They were enslaved. But now they've, they've come to know God. They're no longer slaves, but rather adopted sons. They've come to know God. We need to spend a moment and make a comment on the knowledge of God, knowing God and being known by God. How? How did the Galatians come to know God? Well, it was through the preaching of the gospel. God makes himself known through creation, through his written word, through his word in the flesh, Jesus. And the gospel is the good news about Jesus. The knowledge of God comes about through the preaching of the gospel, and Paul had preached the gospel. This knowledge is intimate. It's personal communion. Um, Jesus himself defines eternal life as knowing God. And if that's true, which of course it is, that means eternal life is not just after we die. Eternal life begins now with a living relationship with the Lord. Remember our Old Testament reading from Jeremiah in the New Covenant. The essence is, they shall all know me. I will be my, their God and they will be my people. And they will all know me. Did you notice in verse 9 the word rather? It means uh, more importantly. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God. Here Paul is conscious of God's sovereignty. That God initiated and God established 
the relationship. God has set his love on these people in Jesus. Yes, they know God, but God knows them. Think with me about the adoption of a child. The parents bring that child home. And the father says, I am your father. Way before that child learns to say in response, you are my father. God takes the initiative. Indeed, it's not who you know primarily. It's who knows you. There are a lot of comforting words in Scripture that I turn to, and there are a lot of disturbing words in Scripture as well. Words that shake me out of a self-created comfort zone. And one of those words is this in Matthew 7, 23, when Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Oh, we know you, Jesus. We know you're the Holy One of God. Depart from me. I never knew you. Wow, does that shake me every time I read that. God takes the initiative. God saves. God speaks and we respond. Well, Paul's question at the end of verse 9 is this. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Why would you want to go back? Paul is saying turn back. Not impossible, but it's preposterous because it's a fundamental denial of who they are. To turn back to what? To become slaves of the weak and worthless elemental principles. Elementary principles of the world. Here Paul is discussing a religion. We don't know if it's a Gentile pagan religion or the Jewish religion. But whatever case it is, it's this. It's external formalism. It's the relationship with God reduced to ritual. No intimate communion, rather just going through the motions. Why? Why would anyone, why would we want to go back? Why? Paul is battling the influence of the false teachers. And they are, as you know, bringing in a legalism that has to do with, yes, in order to be a Christian, you first have to be circumcised. You have to adopt Jewish customs and certain Jewish practices in order to really be a Christian. Well, why? Why would that be attractive? It's because legalism is attractive and appealing because it puts you in control. You want to be in control? Legalism is the car you need to drive in. My friends, the gospel is charity. And none of us, apart from being awakened by the Holy Spirit, want charity. Because we don't like we... We don't want to admit what we prayed together, that we are poor and needy. Nobody wants to admit that until they can't but admit it. Legalism keeps you in control. Admitting that you are helpless and weak and needy means you are not in control. It's one thing 
for them to say, I do not deserve it. It's quite another thing to say, I do not desire it. I instead prefer slavery to sonship. My friends, this is what Paul is dealing with. This is what the Galatians are, 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 are saying. Years ago, I wasn't into contemporary Christian music, but some friends of mine were, and they, they shared with me a song that, with this title. So you want to go back to Egypt? So you want to go back to Egypt? You want to go back to slavery? Yeah, life in the wilderness is tough. It's walking by faith and not by sight, but you want to go back? There's a song that I like by a, a group probably none of you have ever heard of called the Cornelius Brothers and Sister Rose. And it goes like, the title is, It's Too Late to Turn Back Now. Oh, yes, there's someone out there I see. It's too late to turn back now. Well, Paul is actually saying it's, it's not too late because they are turning back. Enslavement, slavery, idolatry. Did anybody read this weekend's devotional and table talk? Written by a colleague, a pastor down in Charleston, South Carolina, a former professional soccer player, came to uh, faith in Christ at Clemson University in jail. A guy named John Payne, who I see once or twice a year. Well, John writes about the idolatry of sports. It's a great article. I encourage you to read it. Idolatry. Deifying and serving the things of this world which are not truly God's, but we treat them as if they were. And if we do, we become slaves to them spiritually. Yes, our hearts are, are idle factories. You know, one assembly line gets shut down, we, we put up another one. We are all idolaters. Because we all attempt to earn our salvation through a couple of different ways, through scrupulous biblical morality and religion or outright paganism and all of its immoral practices. In the end, the religious person who is trusting in their religion and the irreligious person who is trusting in just whatever they want to do, they're both lost. Why? Because they're both trying to be their own savior. They're both trying to be on the, their own Lord there's two ways to be lost. There's ditches on both sides of the road. You got the irreligious ditch on the left where you're really trying to be your own Lord primarily. And on the right is the religious ditch where you're trying to be your own Savior. Jesus is on the road. He is Lord and Savior. He is calling us to get out of the ditch, whether the left or the right, and get on the road and walk by faith with Him by our side. Look with me at verse 11. Paul, who's perplexed, is also afraid. Paul is fearful. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He is afraid that all of his work, all of his gospel ministry will go up in smoke. But more than that, he fears for the Galatians, for those who once knew freedom, now wanting to go back to slavery. Paul is using contrast for a good purpose. And it provides a great help for us, I believe, in how to live the Christian life. To remember both who we once were and now who we are. And remember Ephesians. This is who you were. This is who you are now. 
There's a song called Remember Your Chains. And it's got a line in there for the Christian that says, Remember your chains and remember they're gone. Remember who you once were. Remember who you now are. We need to remind ourselves of what we have and who we are in Christ. We need to become who we are. Corporate worship is a weekly reminder and a reorientation. We need it because we forget. Now you may think, I had to be here because it's my job. Well, my friends, lately I have been, it's been more desperation than my job. I need to be here with you. I need to pray with you, to pray for you, to sing with you, to hear God speak to us through His Word. We forget. Amazing grace we sing. We once were lost, we now are found. We were once blind, but now we see. We were once a slave, now we are a free man. Last Monday was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Remember how the, the, the speech ends the march on washington remember how the speech ends free at last free at last thank god almighty we are free at last i bet the galatians could have sung that in their early days but somehow a new voice has come in that says you know what faith in christ is surely necessary. But faith in Christ, my friends, is not enough. So the question Paul is asking, his argument is this, if, you, if once you were slaves but now sons, if once you did not know God but now you know God, how can you turn back? While waiting for an answer, so to speak, Paul makes a plea on the basis of his personal relationship with the Galatians. He begins, did you notice, addressing them as brothers. Verse 12a, Paul makes a personal appeal. Become as I am, for I have become as you are. What does he mean? Well, first of all, become like me. Paul is longing for them to become like him in the Christian faith and life, to be delivered from the evil influence of false teachers and to share his convictions about the truth as it is found in Jesus, about the liberty with which Christ has made us free. He doesn't necessarily want them to be as right as he is, but rather as joyful as he is. Become as I am. He is saying, my friends, one key characteristic of gospel ministry is that it is transparent. Paul, the apostle, is opening up his heart. Gospel ministry is transparent. But he also says this, not only become as I am For I also have become as you are. Well, what does that mean? Well, because he became like them, Paul put himself in their place and identified with them. He left behind Jewish ceremonial law in order to associate with Gentiles. The end, the goal that he was aiming for was to make them like him, like us. But the means to get there was for him to become like them. 
If they are to become one with us, he is saying in Christian conviction and experience, we must first become one with them in Christian compassion. Paul became like others so that others could come to know Christ. Paul contextualized the gospel. And so in addition to gospel ministry being transparent, gospel ministry is also culturally flexible. Now, what do I mean by that? Any of you all familiar with Islam that's growing all around the world? In many ways, it's growing by people having lots and lots of babies, but it's also growing at the, at the end of the sword. Do you realize that to be a faithful Muslim, you have to get to Mecca sometime? To be a faithful Muslim, you really have to end up knowing Arabic because that's the language? Christianity, and one of the reasons for its spread, is it's been culturally adaptable as it's spread around the world. You don't cease becoming who you are when you come to faith in Christ. That's why ministry in Albania looks different than ministry in Tanzania and different than ministry in Burlington, Kentucky. The gospel ministry is transparent and it's culturally flexible. Well, Paul uses this personal appeal as an introduction to another contrast. This time, it will not be a contrast between what the Galatians once were and are now becoming, but rather it will be a contrast between himself and the false teachers. And in order to do this, he's going to recount their attitude toward him, as well as describe his attitude Toward them. Look with me at verses 12 through 16. This third note, an attitude is exposed. Now, this section is not easy to understand, for it alludes to events familiar to Paul and the Galatians, but unfamiliar to us. That being said, the basic thrust is this the attitude of the Galatians toward Paul has changed drastically from in 12b, you did me no wrong. To verse 16, I've become your enemy. The Galatians' previous attitude toward Paul was in response to his ministry. Paul recalls with fondness that they did him no wrong. They received him, notice, as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Their response to the gospel, it's an extraordinary expression. Paul's demonstrating his self-conscious apostolic authority. Verse 15 is, is got to be hyperbole, exaggeration to make a point. Eyes, a most valuable part of the body, and they would gouge them out and give them to him. They would have done anything and everything because Paul brought the life-giving message of the gospel to them. Paul preached the gospel to them. Look at verse 13. I preached the gospel to you. But because of a detour from a planned itinerary or a delay in a planned schedule, Paul was ill. He somehow got there. Notice with me that suffering, there is an enormous good brought about through suffering. Oh, it's hard to see at the time. But oh, in the rearview mirror, we see how our suffering brings good into the lives of others. Notice that Paul is preaching the gospel to them really by a thwarted plan. His ministry uh, did not happen strictly according to human plan. 
Here at Grace and Peace, we must plan, absolutely, but we also must be very relaxed and not be surprised when God edits our plan. As I like to tell others and I like to tell myself, when you're following, you don't get to choose where you're going. So we've seen the Galatians' previous attitude. Look at their present attitude toward Paul, not in response to the preaching of the gospel, but instead in response to the influence of the false teachers. It goes from hospitality to to hostility. Why? Because Paul is telling the truth. They no longer liked his message. They're starting to reject the one true gospel. In verse 15, we read this. What then has become of the blessing you felt? Those of you may be familiar with the New International Version translation. All translations are interpretations of the original language. And here's how it is rendered in the NIV. What happened to all your joy? What happened to all your joy, Paul is writing? Good questions to ask others and ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that the worst thing for, a, for evangelism is a joyless Christian. And one of the best things for evangelism is a joyful Christian. Joyful, everything going well, smooth sailing, money in the bank, great relationships, no troubles. Are you kidding me? We have joy in this life because we have Jesus. He is the source of our joy. Well, we've now seen the Galatians' previous and present attitude toward Paul. What about Paul's attitude toward them? Obviously, their attitude toward him had changed with his. Here we see most clearly the contrast between the ministry of Paul and the ministry, if you can call it that, of the false teachers. Because in verses 17 through 20, we see another attitude is displayed. Verse 17, they, the false teachers, versus the true teacher, Paul. Remember in, verses, in chapter 1, verse 6, they are the ones encouraging the Galatians to turn to a different gospel. In chapter 3, verse 1, they are the ones who are bewitching the Galatians to, to look to a, a, the flesh as a means of justification. In chapter 3, it's full of this insistence that a difference still exists in Christ between Jew and Gentile, requiring Gentiles to become Jewish in order to be fully justified. And in verse 9 of this chapter, they are encouraging the Galatians to turn and return from, to slavery, from freedom. And now in verse 17, they flatter the Galatians insincerely. And in verse 17, it continues, they're the ones who want to shut you out. And it could mean they want to exclude you from Christ and the freedom in Christ, but the context probably makes it more likely that Paul is saying they're excluding me from fellowship with you. And at the end of verse 17, they, the false teachers, they want to be made much of. A good litmus test of a teacher is he, is he trying to make much of Jesus or much of himself? A good teacher, a good preacher gets out of the way so that people can see Jesus. In verse 19, we see Paul is like a mother. 
We heard that in 1 Thessalonians as well. He is again in the anguish of childbirth. Paul here wants people to not become dependent upon him, but on Christ. Because what does a mother in labor really want to do? Think about it. What does a mother in labor really want to happen and happen soon? For that baby to be born and the cord to be cut and eventually the nurture through the years will result in a, in a uh, as it were, an independent human being who, by God's grace, is absolutely dependent upon the Lord. But the expectant mother wants the labor to end and that is why Paul is in anguish until Christ is formed in you. There it is again. Paul has this intense sense of union with the risen Christ. The goal of, the, of Paul, the preacher, is not favor of men, but rather the formation of Christ. In Colossians 1.28, he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. The false teachers are seeking to dominate Paul is longing that Christ would be formed. The Holy Spirit uses God's word to make God's children like God's son. Because salvation, sanctification in particular, means becoming like Jesus Christ. Back to the beginning. I am perplexed about you. Why is Paul perplexed? Because the Galatians, those whom he loves... And those for whom he labors are on the brink of turning back to once to what they once were, slaves in spiritual bondage. So we've seen that Paul's attitude toward the Galatians was one of deep affection, immense tenderness, and a longing love in the midst of the sobriety and seriousness of his task to present and to preserve the truth of the gospel. Here you see modeled by Paul, truth and love, grace and truth. It's the both and. Well, what have we learned? Let's highlight just three things and end. First of all, the gospel is always under threat. Not so much persecution from the outside, although that may change in the coming years, but rather through false teaching on the inside. Because remember, the false teachers, again, were not saying that faith in Christ is not necessary, but rather that faith in Christ is not enough. It reminds me of the gerbil wheel, right? You see it in pet stores. You may see it at your house, right? The gerbil gets on that wheel and works and works and works and goes nowhere, I've recently been at a hotel or two and in the exercise room they always have a treadmill and you work and work and work and sweat but you get nowhere. My friends, life under both the freedom and constraints of the gospel is a path going somewhere. This has been and will always be a clear and present danger to the gospel. Jesus is not enough. And so, with that, there will always be, secondly, the temptation to go back. I don't know if you've thought about this, but in many ways, grace is scary. Because if we're saved by grace, which we are, then God owns us. 
You are no longer your own. If you're saved or if somehow you think you stay saved by what you do, then you still own yourself. You're trying to maintain control. Grace does not let you stay in control. Therefore, we need to encourage one another to continue to discover and enjoy all that we have in Christ. My friends, this week, make it a point to stop and consider all that you have in Christ and get on the phone or get in the face, and I mean like sit down face to face with a person and share that with them and let them share that with you. So the gospel is always under threat and there is always the temptation to go back. But finally, the third thing that I believe we learn is this. Gospel ministry is personal ministry. It's up close. It's transparent. It's the sharing of life. Paul says, become like us. Do you long for other people to know what you know, to have what you have? Or is it the case maybe that we are reluctant to draw attention to ourselves because our sanctification is actually unchristlike and immature? Do we really want others to have, to know what we have, to what we know? And then finally, we need to become like them. Are we willing to sacrifice our own desires, preferences in order to identify with people so that by God's powerful grace, they may one day identify with us as rescued rebels, as dearly loved children of the Heavenly Father who is in His constant love and care today and always. May God be pleased to give us such a heart for Christ and eyes to see Him that turning back would be the last thing we would ever want to do. My friends, it's not too late to fix your eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Apostle showing us the transparency of gospel ministry and the cultural flexibility of gospel ministry. Father, would you enable us as a church to remain firmly committed to the truth of the gospel because it's that message and that message only that shows us Christ and his work of living a perfect obedient life doing what we could never do and yet doing for us what should have happened to us dying in our place and on our behalf. Father, we thank you that Jesus has rose victorious from the grave. He has ascended to your right hand and he has promised to return and bring us home. Oh, Father, help us to more and more be children of that promise and all the promises of yours that are yes and amen in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.